I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group. We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission. To combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom. To connect the dots and answer the so what. And empower you to do the same. Welcome to this episode of the Canary Group. I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. And today we have a very, very special guest. We have Yaya Fanusi. Want to say hi? Hi. Great to be here. <laughs> well, we are so very happy to have you here. Uh, just to, you know, Yaya pretty much sits around doing nothing. He is only an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. His research focuses on crypto, blockchain, and central bank digital currencies. Uh, he also spent seven years as an economic and counterterrorism analyst for the CIA. After that, he worked at a small consulting firm uh, that focused on global financial asset recovery investigation of kleptocratic regime. He was director of analysis at the Foundation for Defense of, Dem of Democracies Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance. These groups like their long names. Mm -hmm. uh, he focused on sanctions evasion and terrorist financing threats. He also did some of the first public analysis on terrorist crypto crowdfunding campaigns uh, and published a study on Russia, Iran, Venezuela, and China to build national blockchain infrastructure. He's the director of policy for AML and cyber risk at the Crypto Council for Innovation, which is a global alliance advancing crypto innovation. And he's testified before Congress multiple times on illicit financing issues uh, and is also a leading expert on China's CBDC. So I would also add he has put together the most entertaining, wonderful podcast, the Jakari Lincoln Files. And I binged it. I devoured it in probably a day. It was so good. Wow. Uh, and it's also really inspired some of my thinkings as far as some of the some of the companies that I work with are, you know, always trying to figure out how they can get their ESG and their sort of social good have it be more impactful. And one of the things that has really been sort of percolating in my brain is the gamification of a lot of this work. You know, they might have an app, but the app doesn't get nearly the pickup. But it was through listening to your podcast that I started thinking about how you can create a, a, a sort of social good currency in a way. I would never thought about that before. And it was just, it was an inspiration. So all of that to say, I am now a super fan, uh, even more than I was before. Wow, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's, it's good to know that folks are binging <laughs> the content. Yes, fully, fully. 
Michael, you listened as well, right? Oh, absolutely. By the way, uh, we have what we call an absolutely jar here, Yaya, where because every, we use that word mm-hmm. entirely too much here. So every time we use that, we have to put a coin in the jar. But eventually we're going to use that money towards something positive. Yes. <laughs> but you and I actually met a number of years ago talking about central bank digital currencies. And uh, I had to do a project for a company that I worked for. And it sounds kind of like a dry subject. And usually when I talk to people, they say, oh, is that like cryptocurrency? And it's kind of confusing for a lot of people. And I was wondering if you could just sort of explain to people, you know, what is that about? Uh, you know, this mm. uh, crypto, digital, blockchain, these types of things. Is there just a sort of a quick and easy way to explain to them what these things are? Well, the quick and easiest way to explain is that instead of getting too technical uh, with details, just understand that we're at a point where now there are different forms of digital money. So digital money, as we have known it for years, because most people will say, yeah, I, I do digital transactions, typically is you know fintech or banking online or mobile payments. So that's one form of digital money that we all know, relies on financial institutions. A new form of digital money if we can call it that, has been cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency, starting with Bitcoin, started as really a different type of digital value. It's really computer science, right? A computer science asset. It's decentralized. It's, it's a different thing than what you have with, uh, with PayPal, right? But let's just say that's a the second format, okay? Now, another format which is emerging, which hasn't been deployed universally, but a lot of governments are thinking about it, is a central bank digital currency. Uh, We'll use the acronym CBDCs. I don't know if you all have an acronym jar, but if you're talking to, (laughs) you know, Washington people, you're probably, you're going to fill up on the acronym jar. We certainly should. Anybody who's ever been associated with the government, yes. Right, right. So CBDC, central bank digital currency, it's basically when a central bank releases, or in this case, really they're thinking about or they're researching how to create their national fiat currency in a digital form. So it's different than what you get with PayPal or with Bank of America, right? It's not a financial institution creating this sort of private sector money. And it's different from the computer science cryptocurrency, which no one owns in in most cases. And it's this new category where governments are just trying to directly create their own digital currency. So a CBDC. So that's emerging. And China happens to be one of the biggest economies that's experimenting with a CBDC. What would be some of the advantages and disadvantages looking at it from a consumer or a citizen of CBDCs? Mm. So that's the probably the most important, right? What's what what's in it for the citizen and the user? But I'm actually I'm actually going to answer I'm going to answer from the government perspective. Okay. You know, be, because they're the ones that are initiating this, right? So if you think about what a central bank wants to do, a central bank wants to manage the economy, really manage the monetary supply, and wants to understand how the economy is working, moving, you know, monetary policy, et cetera, how, thing, how consumers are responding, how, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What central bankers started to see after Bitcoin created a, a new way to trans, transmit value, they started to see that, hmm, if you had a system where the nation had a 
country digitally distributed, you could assess the economy more easily. You could maybe even be more efficient with payments if you develop this new digital infrastructure. So data analysis, monetary policy management, um, efficiency in payments, all these things are things that central bankers would like. Now, how could it benefit you and me, right? We're not central bankers. Well, what some of the arguments are, you know, basically are things like efficiency in, in payments, uh, where today the, the financial system, the payment system, in most cases is very siloed, it's archaic, you know, we're not really using internet technology, at least not at the, the foundation of this payment. So the idea is, okay, for example, when you had the pandemic payments a few years ago, right? Uh, a lot of people complain that, you know, why did it take months to get people their those stimulus checks? Well, because we have a very arcane payment system. And so a CBDC, some argue, would make those payments quicker, faster, etc. Some people say it would help with financial inclusion, giving people access to accounts or payments that, uh, that have difficulty through the traditional banking system. These are some of the arguments. I'm actually not saying that these arguments are proven. I'm not even saying that I agree <laughs> with this, but this is what's being discussed in policy circles. I'm getting a sense... I'm I'm getting a sense that there is something else afoot here, uh, like so many things with the internet, with virtual reality and AI. It's not so much the actual money that is has the value, so much as the information. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because whenever you start talking about CBDCs, especially the country that we're going to probably talk a bit about, China. The first mm -hmm. thing that comes up in policymakers' minds is, oh, is this going to displace the, the dollar, right? That's sort of the first question. And let's sort of hold that question, you know, in the background. Because what I found is that when you really look into it, it's not really a currency development that's happening here. Now, China's CBDC is technology, but that's not changing the fundamentals of uh, the Chinese yuan. You know, it's not changing the economic or the political factors that impact the value of that currency or the desire for other countries to hold it. But what you have is sort of this new infrastructure being developed, uh, a new a new system where financial transactions can be more data driven because you're really creating this new infrastructure. You know, the current financial system right now, everything is siloed, right? Different financial institutions have their financial records and transaction records. And for the government to get access to that, they have to go to these individual financial institutions, right? Compel them or whatever, but they still have to go separately. There's no, as, as much as people think a big brother is watching you financially, I have to let people know, in the current system, there's no like one terminal where any government can just look and see all the transactions that are happening at once. That does not exist in the current or the legacy financial system. But what's happening in, in China, which already has a vision of digitizing the entire economy and the, the entire really linking everything to the internet in a way where the government has access to the data of 
of all things, really, the data of the internet, the data of transportation, the data of the economy, there's already this vision, this grand vision of data collection. So the CBDC is really just a subset of that broader digital vision. And there's one term that we've seen in some of the Chinese Communist Party documents. Um, I have a colleague at the Center for a New American Security, Emily Jin, and she and I have been looking at documents put out by the Chinese government, uh, which say things like there should be intelligentization of the economy. And I think we translate that as meaning um, being able to acquire data and build analysis and artificial intelligence based on the data that is being collected. That's the overall vision. So a CBDC for China is really about the data even more than just the currency. Isn't and also isn't the development of digital currency, especially in China, sort of a reaction to cryptocurrency? It is. And this happened almost soon after Bitcoin was on the scene. And it wasn't just with China. It was uh, other central banks seeing people moving to cryptocurrencies or cryptocurrencies getting on the scene and circulating. And even though cryptocurrencies have not replaced uh, traditional payments, it at least it, you know, a lot of the central bankers started to see, oh, wow, this is a this is a new thing. Maybe we could we could use it. Now, in China, there was this this added political dimension of seeing, well, we have capital controls. We want to make sure the, the, the yuan is staying in the country. We don't want it moving out. And so crypto actually undermines that. There was a huge concern in China. But there also was something, and your listeners may remember, something that happened in 2019, which impacted China and the rest of the world. It was this little, this small little project, maybe you remember, called Libra. Um, later rebranded re as the D as DM, which was, you know, sort of Facebook led cryptocurrency or not crypto. Well, yeah, it was a blockchain base. It was a sort of managed cryptocurrency that a lot of countries were scared of <laughs> because this idea of the potential to undermine payments within the country, undermine um, monetary sovereignty. Uh, so that accelerated the move towards a CBDC. I mean, China was already on that path, but when Libra came on the scene, you basically saw them really double down and say, okay, no, 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 we're gonna, first of all, we're gonna ban cryptocurrency trading because we don't like it. And we're gonna accelerate our own crypto, I mean, not crypto, because it's not, it's not a crypto, it's not based on the same system, it's centralized, but we're gonna create our own digital currency and slowly we want to embed it in our economy and our payment system. So it seems if we were to look at it on a line and at mm. one end you have sort of crypto, which is sort of like this wild, it, they both use blockchain, but one is sort of uncontrolled and the other one is sort of centrally controlled. Is that a good way to kind of explain the difference between crypto and digital? You can say that. And with the, the caveat that CBDCs, uh, there's no one design. Um, they don't necessarily have to be blockchain based. Um, they're different models. In fact, China's is, it has some blockchain elements, but it's not a distributed ledger. It has some elements of distributed ledger in its, in its sort of ecosystem, and we don't need to get into those weeds. But yeah, cryptocurrencies, you know, really are just software that's 
open source and anyone can download a wallet. There's no restrictions on who, who you send something to, right? That's like a decentralized system. Central bank digital currencies would work differently, right? They're not gonna, they're gonna be more controls. Um, the design maybe would be more centralized in terms of who can access the software and who could create and build on it. So we're talking about really opposite ends of the digital currency spectrum. So a digital new one or a digital dollar or a digital pound sterling is just mm -hmm. the currency, but in a digital form. And, exactly. and since it's in a digital form, and it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist in a corporal form, right? In a, in a physical form, it means that mm -hmm. the government can then look at that and see it at all times and all places. Well, theoretically, yes. But again, this is this is why I say this. It all depends on the design. I mean, theoretically, yes. I mean, if you're creating, um, I think in most cases, when a government is creating a digital currency, it, it wants the benefits of being able to see what's happening. What you see, let's take a place like the EU, right? The EU is having a lot of debate right now about this question, because on one side of the argument you have people saying in within the EO, oh, we're going to do this, this digital euro, and it's going to be private, right? So, so what does that mean? What they're saying is that, well, the data is going to be out there, but the central bank, the government won't have access to the identities. They'll, it's like it'll be anonymized data. Now, these are all in their sort of early, these discussions are in their early stages, but that's easier said than done. So, so if you design it the way China is designing it, I think there's going to be a very thin barrier between the government and your identity. So the government in, in, the, in the ECNY, that's the electric Chinese yuan, that's the China CBDC, they're saying that, well, the, the People's Bank of China, their central bank, won't have access to the names but they will have access to the data. <laughs> That's what they're saying. And they're saying, well, you know, only if there's like criminal activity, then we'll be able to get the, the data. And we know that's a paper thin assurance, right? In Europe, I think they're trying to figure out if they're gonna, you know, how to really make it private, how to allow some of this CBDC activity to be like cash. And that is where, I mean, the devil is in the details. I mean, those the technology around how to do that and how to make a policy so that you can be private, but then you don't just allow everything to be anonymous and have illicit activity, that hasn't been worked out. And that's why I would say, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler here. M my sense is that there needs to be more technological work and advancement around privacy technology before you unveil a CBDC. I mean, it's a, it's a huge... There's a dystopian future we could imagine if you don't get the privacy part right. There's so much to unpack here. And I could think of about five or six things, ways I'd like to go to ask this. But I guess first things first, and just to use a practical mm -hmm. example, you used before to talk about COVID payments. And it occurred to me that before the government, the government was distributing this money with the hopes that people would use it to kind of help to keep the economy going in a direction. But with a digital currency that you could be seen, wouldn't that also give the government the potential to be able to control that currency? And I'll give a scenario. I'll, I'll talk about like in, in the Bible, they talked about manna, 
you know, uh, God provided manna to the wandering Jews in the, in the desert, but they couldn't save it, right? It was just mm-hmm. something that they, they were supposed to use it at that point, and then it would disappear, but it would be replaced later. Mm-hmm. If a digital currency was in place and you gave people digital, these payments, you could actually put caveats on those, right, of what they could use it for. You could put a time limit on it, maybe? Mm-hmm. Is that a possibility? You're talking about features that are being discussed. Oh. And this is why, yeah, this is why I'm, I'm, I was saying it really depends on design. Um, what you've described is the essence of something new in digital money, programmability. This is something that is, this is new. This is, I think it, it could be revolutionary uh, in in a way of like like great innovation to unlock maybe some, some new types of model, business models and revenue models and could unlock some dystopian futures. <laughs> okay, I so you want it. an example. Yeah, so, so, so let's, let's go with that. So, okay, so let's say, so actually this is the, some of the initial CBDC uh, discussions in China talked about the government giving money and it would have an expiration date. It would have an expiration date because you they want it to stimulate the economy. So you have to spend it for this special, you know, maybe a, a certain set of retailers. In fact, this is a real example that we observed when we looked at some of the pilots. Basically, the government was trying to spur tourism locally. They were trying to get people to not travel as part of really stemming the pandemic, but also uh, they wanted people to to shop locally, go to cultural attractions, etc. So they were they they gave some of this ECNY that specifically was programmed just to be basically redeemed at certain types of uh, merchants. And so the idea was to stimulate the economy, the local economy, keep people <laughs> have people spending locally, right? Okay, so that that that's a use case. And there are other use cases, right? You could say, oh, if you don't spend it, the money disappears. We gave it to you for free, and now it's going to disappear, yeah. right? But there, but think about programmability. In you can also consider that you could put parameters and constraints on how or when you can spend, or maybe who you can spend with. Maybe you program that certain wallets that fit a certain demographic, maybe foreigners in the country, maybe people of a particular ethnic group, people from certain provinces, that their transactions, maybe they aren't allowed to spend outside city boundaries. I always say that the limits of programmability are only in the imagination of the programmer which is uh, can be a good or it can be a dystopian thing. And we can we can talk about this. I mean, I don't want to turn into a it's funny because right, because you can sort of speak about this in a way that sounds like a conspiracy theory. But I think, you know, having a balanced view, the policy discussion has to like answer, ask these questions. What should be the limits? And I'll, I'll one thing I know I'm going on long with this answer, but I want to give you nuggets that I think people will recognize Singapore. Singapore is very interesting, very fast, sort of innovating, right? It's a financial center in East Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, the Central Bank of Singapore recently put out a paper they called Purpose Bound Money. And I found it to be very interesting because purpose bound money, doesn't it sound great? It sounds really intriguing. Very positive. It's basically, yeah. it's very sounds positive. Sounds wonderful, yeah. Oh, oh, don't you want some purpose bound money? 
Um, but, of you course. Know, <laughs> I want all my money to be purpose-bound. <laughs> exactly. Or, or purpose-bound life with purpose-bound money. Um, but, right? But the, <laughs> the funny thing is, I mean, it's, it's programmability. It's about, you know, can you program money for certain functions? But if you think about in the EU, they're debating this exact same thing. The debate is, should we even allow this programmability? Where should programmability be? Because some of the policymakers have had to say, well, you know what? We need to put in some sort of rule that the government will never take away your purchasing power, that that we won't build that into the money because that many citizens would not want that. So purpose-bound money depends on how you look at it. As a state, it may be great. Um, or, but there are some challenges because could that programmability be turned against businesses, citizens, groups? Mm-hmm. Do we know how the do we know how the purpose bound money played out in Singapore? No, was it this? We don't know yet. These are research papers. Um, okay. Yeah, in Singapore. Wow. Yeah, the, the this is them. Like right now, we're at the stage of of pilots and prototypes. So they have not, but they're basically it's it's. I think it's so important to to go through these because central banks are really putting out the roadmaps now. It's sort of like saying, you know, our vision includes purpose-bound money, and this is what how it should look like. This is how it should work. And they're talking to developers, right? Everything right now is is in a research phase. And I think one thing, and I am a true lightweight in this space, but if I recall correctly from China's sort of expiration date funds that they feel during COVID, one of the things was the the locations that would be able to accept that currency were all those that had, um, you know, the the government had a major financial stake in them. And so it was a way to kind of fuel money back into exactly where they wanted the money to go and not where they didn't. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's why it's the, this programmability, putting parameters, putting restrictions, you can just see that it's vulnerable to abuse, right? That That's why I say- It's almost so, too easy. Yeah. Almost too easy. So it depends on the the political environment, right? And the, the even the cultural environment, culture in terms of the rights of privacy, accountability, rights of the individual, these things are actually important to think about if you're going to design these really comprehensive financial systems that that have more power or more function, uh, more more functionality than than our typical money today. And the temptation is so great. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but it could be done with all the best intentions. I mean, you could be looking against anti-money laundering. You could be looking at fair taxation. You could be looking at uh, trying to make sure people aren't using you know, money for nefarious uh, things. But as we've seen probably through history, you know, these things tend to expand, right? And to use an example, if you have $10 and you give them that $10 to somebody, I give $10 to my, to my daughter for her birthday. The government could see that transaction and they could see where every penny of that money goes to where my daughter gives it to and then follow that money to everybody else and see the interconnectivity, right? Yes, that is a, a potential. 
But again, sure. it really depends on design. So that's why, I mean, the on first the carpet, instinct yeah. is, I mean, no one wants this in, in the US, right? But, but, but so I have to say that, I mean, policy, so in the US, in the West, in sort of like-minded countries, what is being said is that, well, if we're going to do this, we got to figure out how to make it private. Michael, to take your example, like here's here's what how people would respond. They would say, OK, well, no, with the government might see transactions, but they're not going to see your daughter. There's no need for them to see your daughter or exactly who she's spending that ten dollars with. I mean, that should be hidden. But what about if she goes and spends it with someone who is an mm -hmm. illicit actor and then the government has a reason to to look at her and here's a technical thing that you need to solve so let's say we say okay there's a subpoena so the the government has a right to unmask and get those identities so they get the identity of the illicit actor but then they get the identity of your daughter because she just happened to spend maybe at, at she went to the store and that store was owned by a drug dealer not that you send her to go to go go to the local you know the the front you know the, how michael parents yeah. he has his daughter do all of his dirty work all the drug deals yes. the she the, can always find her yeah michael i didn't know you were breaking bad but uh, uh breaking uh, yes. breaking so so i'd say he, he already broke bad He's he past that. Um, uh, breaking so, well. So, yeah. so also, I think, mm. well, we talk about an expiration date, mm. uh, you know, that could turn off access to those funds for everybody. It also sounds like you could go in and just decide if someone is a political rival, you could just turn off their wallet. Well, it we, I think we saw a hint of this a few years ago in China. Again, to going talking about the Chinese environment. Uh, I'm seeing a of, pattern. Yeah, I mean, you, your listeners may remember in a couple of years ago, H&M Clothing Store, H&M yes. Apparel, right? Very popular. They're they're in China. Oh, um, yes. I, I, I think they're a Swedish company, or, or I think, but they were in the crosshairs of the Chinese government because they had a blog where they expressed concern about the Xinjiang region and the labor market and, you know, sort of slave labor, et cetera, in, in Xinjiang region. And the Chinese government didn't like that. So you know what it did? The government really started a campaign to remove H&M's digital footprint in the country. And what that means is they basically took all the e-commerce platforms and they removed H&M from those platforms in China. They took H&M locations out of all geolocation apps. So if you had the Chinese version of Uber and, oh, and you said, oh, I want to take me to the to the H&M store in Beijing, it wouldn't show up. Invalid location, even though the store is still there. Holy so, moly. Yeah, this was real. And this lasted for a good year and a half before they sort of uh, stopped these practices, really the boycott ended. That didn't involve digital currency at all. It was just figuring out how to remove, right, from the digital space, from uh -huh. the internet. If H&M had ECNY wallets, was really forced to use the ECNY, which I think we can say all retail foreign mm -hmm. companies probably will be forced to in the coming years, mm -hmm. it would have been so easy for the government to say, Oh, you want to put up a blog? You need to take that blog off or all of the wallets of your stores will be inactive. You know, you can imagine someone from the NBA just tweets, you know, free Hong Kong. 
And then you can imagine, mm-hmm. oh, the NBA is big in China. I, uh, oh, no more NBA tickets can can transact until you tweet an apology to to China for what you said about Hong Kong. You could These potentially are- even mm-hmm. turn off the wallets of their customers or yeah, their employees. And, and absolutely. I mean, the the infrastructure Ugh. that's being built would lend itself for this. And and this mm-hmm. is such an important point because most people say they usually many people say, well, you know, China the government already has control and they already yes, but this intermediate step where the government has to tell the company and force them and and go to different companies or different banks, this is a huge step. Um, that is being mm-hmm. skipped if you have the the payment systems and, and the wallets all under the control of the government. It makes it so much easier to just, you know, turn off everything. And in China, control is like chocolate. You can't ever have too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking, I mean, certain cities... I mean, what you're seeing, I mean, everyone knows already that there's a surveillance. It's a bit of a surveillance state. Um, It is a, yeah. Yeah. And just, just imagine now adding financial payments to that surveillance. That's a big, that's a big step. Mm. Well, that's unnerving. I know. <laughs> I told you it gets. It can be <laughs> like, very dis- I mean, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. You are just a ray of sunshine. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Well, it's funny because uh, boycotting of products has always been uh, mm. a, a major Chinese tactic, uh, of, uh, even since the 1920s and 1930s, mm. right? And it's been very effective because it is such a large market. So, I mean, this does have the potential. You could, uh, you could definitely direct your population to not buy certain products or not to do certain things with a flip of a switch. It may not be that easy, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, in the theoretically, and, and even just, so it's, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And th- what this would allow, remember, programmability. So you could maybe throttle payments. So maybe all of your wallets don't go off, but maybe you just, you know, you turn it down a little so that some sometimes they go Enough off. Enough is a warning. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you yeah. would, as a government, though, you would also know if people are spending their money on things you don't want them to spend it on. Absolutely. You could have designate things as, as red, red, green, and yellow <laughs> if you wanted to. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, one of the one of the things, prohibition, we wanted people to stop, you know, uh, imbibing in alcohol. But I mean, you mm. could... You could put uh, you could put prohibitions on cigarettes. You could put prohibitions on alcohol. You could put prohibitions on fatty foods. You could put prohibitions yeah. on high sugar content uh, soft drinks. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Here, here's one thing, and this is direct from uh, from some of the PBOC leaders, I believe, if I remember this. That's the People's quote, Bank of China, right? People's Bank of China, the central right. bank. So they. The central bank is going to do analysis. So in China, right, the PBOC, the People's Bank, is is really the, um, you know, is over the anti-money laundering system, right? So one of the examples they use themselves, this is a very mundane example, but it gives you a, a sense of what's possible. So gambling is illegal in China, techni- technically. And there was this one quote where they said something like, well, we're going to monitor so so we could pick up patterns. And they said one example would be is let, because they know gambling usually happens late at night. 
so they could see if there are a lot of weird payments happening late at night that might get flagged for gambling. And so then they could deal with that. So you see this analysis of, of your spending transactions, you could deem it, oh, this is suspicious because it's happening at this time, late hours, et cetera. Um, flag it and then maybe you send an investigator or, or just maybe just turn off, <laughs> turn them off until the morning. In China, though, and this is like a, a counterbalance to that, is that there is a significant part of the population who live outside of urban areas and who are not part of the banking system, right? Mm. And that's one of the things, I know that's one of the the things that are kind of a, um, that, that's kind of slowing down the, the, the hopes of implementing a central bank digital currency in China because mm. of that. Um, but the other thing, too, that occurred to me when I was doing a research paper on this in 2021, one of the things that occurred to me would be that human beings always find a way to get around uh, obstacles. And in this case, the obstacle being if you don't want people to look at your money or you want to make transactions that are not going to be recorded, how what would basically come out of that? And I don't know if necessarily it would be something like crypto, but it would because the, the thing with cryptocurrencies is that it isn't it isn't backed up like a fiat currency. It doesn't have the backing of a government. It doesn't have some sort of assets, right, that are mm. backing it up. So what would be would, – this is being kind of hypothetical. But if yeah. people were looking for a way to get around this uh, – Well, this is probably why the Chinese government banned crypto trading as it is trying to push this its own digital currency because really your only options are so actually there are three options for anonymity or privacy so one the official one that the that the chinese government has acknowledged is that they have said that there would be some anonymity allowed in this currency system low level low threshold low volume transactions so for example maybe you could get a wallet and it only has a limit like a certain number of yuan where you don't have to give as much information there's also they're trying to build in so in let's say in rural areas where there's not a good internet connection they're doing sort of hardware where you can save the money on it and then you can transmit without an internet connection at least temporarily right you can spend your your ECNY with someone else in a rural area, eventually you have to, it has to, I guess, be reconciled, right? But sort of temporarily you can spend, they're building that. So that's anonymity at a very low level. So that's an official. The second is physical cash, which is becoming less and less, but it, I mean, yeah, if you spend in physical cash, then that's not monitored. But the third, I think, is crypto cryptocurrency. If if people can access cryptocurrencies, that gives them a way to transact. Well, it's not anonymous per se. I mean, it's it's not totally private, but at least it's a way that the government doesn't control those tokens. You know, Neil Stevenson raised a point. I mean, he he's a he writes, you know, some Oh, the author. Right, the author. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Wonderful guy. I mean, he's very much into actually cryptology and things like that, but he writes a lot mm -hmm. of science fiction. But in one of yeah. his books, he raised the point that each subsequent civilization's data becomes, we find more efficient ways of saving data, but it becomes more fragile. And if all of your money, if you don't actually have a physical representation of money and it all goes mm -hmm. on to just an electronic medium, uh, electron, it's... 
something mm. could happen. There could be an EMP explosion or you could have a solar flare or something that could possibly. So, you know, we would be, do you think that we would be probably more uh, vulnerable to our, our money disappearing or? You are raising questions for the age. I mean, that's not a small question. I mean, no, the, no, I'm serious because that I, I think a lot about this. I mean, ever since I've started digging deeper into CBDCs, I've been asking questions like that because because the, the Chinese example is a good example of going all in on digitization you know, all in because all of what it provides for the state, for analysis, for innovation, they've gone all in. And as I think about it, so there's the authoritarian side, but then as you said, you're relying more on having electricity, having electrical power, right? I mean, if you don't right. have cash, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're relying on, on these tools, on these wallets. Um, it's interesting because you mentioned the rural areas in China, a lot of what the government is saying is that they want to build in this infrastructure, the ECNY, for rural areas because they're not connected to the digital world or to you know the banking system as much. So there's actually a a push for rural electrification, but sort of rural development to be matched or aligned with the ECNY as a way. So they're going hand, hand in hand. And can I mention, because I don't want to forget this, I'm trying not to be dystopian, but can I mention <laughs> something? I mean, I mean, it's when we, we read this stuff <laughs> in black and white, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emma, Emma, my, uh, my co-author Emily and I, we, we've, we've made some discoveries and we're like, we're not trying to be conspiracy, but this stuff is just so, I mean, outlandish again. So here's- It's rife for it, yeah. So here's a perfect example. So we were doing research and uh, again, Emily, Emily Jin, she was translating for me um, this passage that we read in an article about some ECNY pilots. And it kept talking about developing rural brains and digital twins. And we were like, what, what mm. is that? Digital twins. So lo and behold, we looked into it. Digital twin or digital twins are a new thing in urban planning. Um, and you'll find this in a lot of, really around like the discussion of smart cities um, in urban planning policy and municipal policymaker circles. So a digital twin is when a municipal government creates a digital representation of a city or neighborhood, right? And so it builds a model. Mm -hmm. So it could be a model where it, it mirrors what's happening. In the physical world or in the physical space, there are sensors. And, and in the cyber or in the, the digital, you can see what's happening, right? So you're getting signals, maybe the traffic. I mean, again, mundane, positive use. You're monitoring traffic on your digital model and it's showing you when there's a traffic jam. It's showing you when the lights, it's mm -hmm. showing you speeding violations. It's showing you other things mm -hmm. of the physical space. And so you're meant, so this is the idea of a digital twin and it's really being sort of promoted as the next level for city management and, and even um, emergency rescue response, et cetera, et cetera. So we're really reading about this and there are some research articles where some Chinese academic researchers talk about how digital could have been, they give this, how it could be used in an example like this. They say, so in a city like Beijing, there are high rise buildings and apparently they say there's this problem 
or at least they, they say there's this problem where people are taking selfies outside of windows and they're like leaning out and how that's a, a major safety concern. And mm. so they say, mm -hmm. well, if you have a digital twin, you could have a situation where if an action like that happens in the physical space, you could then get an alert on your digital twin about mm -hmm. it. And then you could deploy um, law enforcement or safety to that situation to take care of the situation. But here's the other part of the digital twin. The digital twin. What could twin, possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? Because, <laughs> you know, with a digital twin, the idea is that in the digital model, you could then respond and impact the physical model. So mm -hmm. you, you get alerted to something and then you program and then something happens. So the question I was thinking when I read that passage, I said, so wait, so doesn't that mean you could like maybe shut the window from your from your location or better yet, you know, close close buildings. You you know, you want to keep people in and you lock the doors. I mean, this is where you could take this. I'm just saying as someone who has accidentally closed the window on my dog's head. Oh, um, no. That just yeah, I I mean I, I, I stopped immediately, but I'm getting flashbacks of yeah. poor Moose's head in the oh. window. <laughs> but yeah, you could lock people in. I mean, that's imprisonment. What about instantaneous fines, though? I mean, somebody mm. jaywalks and then suddenly you see that and you deduct money from their account through digital currency. Why not? Some, somebody is doing something. Uh, well, because in China, they're talking about the social currency, right? Yeah, social uh, credit. Right, your social credit. But they always say, right, they always say hit people in their pocketbooks and then that will that will influence their mm -hmm. behavior. Um, yes, their social credit could go down, but there could also be a monetary, instantaneous monetary fine. And if you could see it on your phone that you've just been deducted, you know, you know 600 you know, new won or, you know, you've just gotten yeah. this thing. And I think that would be a very potent way of, of, of getting people to uh, to do what you want them to do. Yeah. It's just like Demolition Man, where the when whenever Sylvester Stallone swore, he got a notice that he had you know three whatever deducted. Absolutely. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cha-ching. Like, that's back, one ECNY. One ECNY for my. Yes, account. we need to create a digital absolutely <laughs> jar. Oh, I have so many good ideas now. So. One of the things, going back to what Michael was saying about not having that physical uh, backing for mm, the okay. currency, you know, yeah. certainly there's plenty of historical evidence for why you would want to have physical backing. If you look at even just in the Civil War, the Confederates mm. did not. And so the level of poverty following the end of the war was even worse than it would have been mm. uh, because the currency was completely eroded, like the, the rug was swept out from under their feet. There was nothing to back it. It just became paper. And I think the same thing happened not long after banking system set up for blacks, for freed slaves, mm -hmm. was also not backed by anything physical uh, and there was some, of course, some nefarious actors who set about crashing the banks with their patrons, assuming that it was backed by the federal government and there was no backing for it. And so these banks, even with Frederick Douglass, I think he tried to put in like a bunch of his own money to shore them up. And still with the run on the bank, it was all gone. 
Mm. totally going on a civil war rant here, but there's lots of good reasons to have currency backed by physical value Mm -hmm. and to not have that and to require electricity for it. It's Mm. terrifying. Well, I mean, so, so this is where we get to this question of, of yeah, the, the future of, of not only money, but, but like you said, getting to a more digital existence where we're removed from the physical world. I mean, it, it, it goes to philosophical questions, and I don't know how much we want to get into them, but I, I think what you all are raising are actually philosoph- philosophical questions in many ways, because um, for me, it's what sort of world do we want to live in, right? In in the, the Chinese government, uh, their planning documents, it's very clear. It's a, an ultimately digital in, in uh, world. They're even talking about this idea of the, the Internet 3.0 in their mind, which is the Internet, the, the, the virtual world and the real world are, are connected and things are more virtual. And so we're operating in the virtual space. You know, it's like the, their version of the metaverse. Whereas we, we see well, what is the social impact of us getting more virtual and actually disconnected from the physical? Um, I actually feel that there's something, so being in touch with that which is nature, which is you and I, people, the earth, (laughs) the woods, the physical world, that's part of humanity that, you know, Mm -hmm. and when you're only interacting in the digital or the virtual as we are right now, there's so many benefits to it. But if you're only operating there, are you not getting away from what makes us human, the core of us? And what are the the, the problems with that. And these are why I say they're questions for the age. And the U.S., I think, in like-minded countries have to articulate a vision of what should the future, the digital future be? Is it to just follow in the, the footsteps of China with this holy digital existence? Or is it for us to figure out our balance? And I like to say that we're That's- in the... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that I, that rings very true given the number of studies that came out for both just Gen Z, who are more digitized, mm. uh, that there is a very strong current of loneliness, but also just in general following COVID, the level of depression you know, that was shared by certainly in the U.S. and I would assume in most other communities that, that had sort of social distancing and quarantine you know, and stay at home orders, that loneliness is very real. And it's not something that we were able to fully bridge virtually. We all could get Yeah, we could all hop on teams or or, uh, WebEx or whatever it was zoom, but we still saw depression and loneliness surge. Yeah, because it's not a substitute for Mm -hmm. the human interaction, human Mm -hmm. connection, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right about uh, about this, though, about having to have a touch with nature. I lived in, in Tokyo for about I lived in Tokyo for about six years, seven years. Um, mm. One of the things that I saw there, I, I, I interacted with a lot of young people whose existence was mostly on their phone, more so than I think than here in the United States. But these people didn't have a lot of physical uh, interactions with people, just electronic interactions. Um, And they based all their friendships on these very kind of very nebulous um, 
uh, relationships that they people that they talk to on the phone. Um, and I, but there was a, tr- uh, a very large level of uh, depression, uh, alienation. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's something too. You're right. Philosophically, we have to ask what kind of world we want to live in. And I, I'll mm. be honest, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit uh, dubious of the advantages. When I was mm. studying it, the way the Chinese were trying to market it was about convenience. And they were trying to market it to its mm. urban youth population. Look how convenient yeah. this is. It just makes it more convenient. And when the, when the Winter Olympics came to, you know, to Beijing, they were also, one of the marketing campaigns was to try to market it to foreigners to get into it was convenience. You won't have to worry about all these things. But I said, but you mentioned earlier the devil's in the details and we could be lulled into accepting these things. We wouldn't be able to see the actual, what is actually going to come out of this, right? Well, I mean, think about, to, to get to this, um, I mean, especially Kate, when you were talking about the statistics about loneliness and just think about it. I mean, I'm I'm of the the age, and I don't want to guess everyone else's, but right, I'm I'm a Gen Xer, which means I yeah <laughs> the, the forgotten generation. Join the I, club, I Gen All Xers right, unite. Right? <laughs> which exactly right? Which means we had we really were born out of the you know we experienced the '80s. You know, we experienced this. You know, maybe some of the '70s, the Boy, '80s, and the early we. '90s. Yeah, not proud. Right? We were not we, proud. Exactly. Bef- <laughs> before the internet, we before things. Google, we were raised there, and so we really, so we can still remember things like writing letters to to family members or friends. Yes. I mean, I remember when college, I got to travel a lot, and I remember when I you know, I went overseas for a summer and writing my friends. And today. We're connected to our friends more just via text, via all these WhatsApp groups, etc. But our our communications are not as deep and substantive. Uh, when you would write a letter to a friend or even a postcard, it was really there was a lot there. Mm-hmm. And you kept in even you phone calls, right? To keep in touch, you had to call someone. So maybe mm-hmm. every weekend you'd call someone, you'd have a real talk. And now you're in touch with them via text but Mm -hmm. are you as close to your relatives as we remember in those older days when we would you know call someone up the depth at which you're thinking about someone when you're writing them a letter versus shooting them a text or you know a funny gif or gif however you want to say it Mm -hmm. totally different sort of thoughtful connection you know, and finding a phone and dropping your change in or, you know, accepting the long distance charges to call someone meant that it really counted and you were taking the time to do that and to focus on them. It's almost mm. as we've kind of reduced the the value of the currency of connection that you can have as much mm. as you want, but it's I see worth- what you did there. Yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> the currency but, of connection. <laughs> but it's worth less. There's more of it, but the value has gone way down. Wow. And I I, I think that we're looking at sort of a a nation, at least, I would say, you could say a world where, you know, inflation has hit in a way, and we don't have the currency. I mean, we can throw more and more and more at it, but it's not going to make a dent just to carry on with Mm. the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's value, less value. Well, you have to look at subverting people's expectations. And these days, I think people have a much shorter, there's a much higher expectation that they're going to be able to get what they want in a much shorter period of time. Whereas, and 
so not to trumpet our, our Gen X experience, but it was sort of a thing where we may be the last generation that remembers, you know, where you had to wait for things. Um, and so mm. in our desire for more faster, we may be falling into a society that's going to be become like a dystopian society because of things like digital currency, unless we're very careful about it, or we, we start asking mm. questions about these things instead of saying, yes, I know you're telling me these are the upsides, but what are we going to do to protect this, this, and this? And the Europeans have been very mm-hmm. good about talking about data protection and things like that. And then on the other end, so if we had two examples, you know, we, so on the, if, mm. if we were looking at this and saying, you know, who's the crypto and who's the digital, we'd say, well, the Europeans are more of the crypto. They seem to be a little bit more, there's a lot more anonymity or at least questions of anonymity and who's a lot more, you know, looking over your shoulder and that might be China. And I, but I look at the United mm-hmm. States and I've seen some of the, uh, the talking about a digital dollar. And I don't know what the discussions are right now uh, because it seems to be very theoretical mm-hmm. at a very high level, right? And the and it's actually becoming a um, it is being discussed more, but it is my concern is it's being discussed without a lot of nuance because you know we don't have to get political here, but um, CBDCs have come up on the radar in the election cycle now. Um, you have on the Republican side a few candidates who have actually come out and said they will not allow a CBDC. And you actually see that in in Congress. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's more on the Republican side, but it's a very like, um, I would say, right. reactionary. It just, you know, you know, it's almost like they listen to our conversation <laughs> and they're like, they're doing what anyone would do, which is, okay, ban CBDC. Hell no. Right? <laughs> hell, hell no. But here's the thing. I mean, I'm not saying ban CBDCs, even with all of what we said. What what I'm saying is, you know what? I think we're in a 1776 to 1787 moment. And what I mean is that, you know, if we think about the founding of the country, mm. it was the, the founders, basically, they had studied history and they created a framework that would keep government in check. They saw what happens when government has total power. I mean, it doesn't end well, right? It, mm-hmm. it never ends well. So they created this framework to defend, you know, the rights of the individual and sort of the, the inalienable rights, you know, endowed by your, our creator, like these principles, and they created a framework for that. And the Fourth Amendment was a pretty clear, like, answer to what happens with government, which is, you know, no, you need to have privacy. Your papers can't mm-hmm. just be seized and, and searched. So I say we're in a similar moment in that we have the opportunity to see, well, what happens with data and how could data be abused? And if we are going to get into this digital world, what, how do we build restrictions? How do we, from, from government use, from anyone? Because if we don't, there's going to be abuse and the human spirit, the hu- like we, we would lose something. So I think instead of just saying, okay, ban CBDCs, we actually need to think out, think about what is the vision of, what is the framework for us existing in, in this digital mm-hmm. world? I was going to ask you mm-hmm. a little bit earlier because you know, we, we've bandied around the term blockchain, but could you just could we explain just to our listeners real quick, you know, what is blockchain and why does it give this level of, of trust in these? Because, you know, 
if you're talking about currency, you have to have a level of trust, you know, that someone's not going to go in and manipulate the data. How does blockchain in a very high level way, how does that basically prevent that from happening or give us that level of trust? Yeah, because blockchain is basically, uh, think about it as a really a system of recording transactions in a way where the record is totally set. And usually you confirm these transactions and you, you record them through a network of computers. So basically a blockchain is a chain of all these transactions sort of you know chronologically tied together and s signed and sealed in a way where that data set can't be tampered with because if you change one component, it wouldn't measure up, the, all the signatures would not be aligned. So it has to be consistent. So, so blockchains are these public, public ledgers. And so cryptocurrencies have been built upon them. And that's why cryptocurrencies are, you know, they're based on a decentralized system. No, no one owns them. There's this record that everyone can look at. And so governments are experiencing, they're trying to, they're trying to borrow from that system to create blockchains where there's a limited uh, amount of parties, perhaps. That's one model. So it's like a permissioned blockchain. So C some CBDCs are looking at blockchain, mm -hmm. uh, sort of a variation of cryptocurrencies, but a more controlled blockchain. All CBDCs aren't necessarily going to be blockchain, uh, but it, it's, you know, it serves a potential uh, design model. Do you think that digital mm -hmm. currency is inevitable? In some form, yeah. yes. I mean, because mm -hmm. I think, I think but we're already sort of there. Uh, we were just talking to a previous guest who was in Ukraine mm. who said she never pulled out her wallet once while visiting Ukraine. Everything was done via her phone. Yeah, but that's why I say there are these different formats, right? It's the digital, like fintech payments, mobile payments, you know, um, Cash App. That is a form of digital money. Cryptocurrencies, another form of digital money. CBDCs, another potential form or format. And I think we're going to have these formats all together, at least mm -hmm. at some point in different jurisdictions. They all exist and they're just different models. You know, just kind of like you have a Word doc and a PDF doc, different version of data for maybe different functions. Is there value then in having sort of competing versions Yes. Rather than getting all on one system, it seems like there actually so. might be some checks and balances to having different ones that have different values and and characteristics. You brought up Ukraine. Just I think of it as different tools in a toolbox. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine within days, the government posts on Twitter saying, hey, send us your cryptocurrency <laughs> to help us. And it's going to go straight to our wallets. That was more efficient than them saying, hey, send us a check mm -hmm. or, or contact our bank. Right. Mm -hmm. And they raised millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars within days. That that was a crisis situation. That was a war situation where it made sense to fundraise through crypto. Now, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you should take that logic and then do what El Salvador did and say, 
oh, Bitcoin is going to be our legal currency. We're going to do everything based <laughs> off Bitcoin. To me, that's your, your cross purposes here, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be able to think that maybe a crypto in a certain situation, fast payments, nobody controls, you can send it. Hey, that makes sense in that situation. But it doesn't mean you should base your nation on top of it. And... Um, Kind of, I don't know, this is, I mean, it's funny, you started talking about the, the podcast, and I don't want to give away spoilers with- the, I was about to say, <laughs> we need to get there, like, now, because it's so, it's hanging there. Um, but yes, go okay. for it. I, Dive right in. No, I, I so I just, I mean, maybe it's more of a, te I'll put a tease, because, again, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers, because, so the Jabari Lincoln podcast, I mean, it's a fictional account, it's a spy thriller, but it brings out, hopefully, in an in an entertaining way, some of these themes about, well, what happens if if money doesn't work like you thought it should work? And, and you know, maybe there are alternative ways of transacting. It doesn't mm -hmm. say that these ways are all good or all bad, but it's trying to bring out some of these themes. I'm flashing on Enemy of the State, where all of his, yeah. Will Smith and his family's banks mm -hmm. were just suddenly like they were shut off they all the cards were overdrawn i'm sure there's a million other movies like that but i love that one mm -hmm. um yeah and it's so real and i think this is sort of an odyssey of a journey for jabari and after i listened to the podcast i kept thinking i'm like i'm gonna get to interview jabari because i do think there's some <laughs> commonality <laughs> that and I just have you know a weak hold on reality but um I I think that as he navigates this sort of epic journey it starts with the ease with which sort of stereotypical kind of computerized algorithms can flag things so he comes under suspicion because so who is maybe we should say who he is so he Jabari Jabari go for it you go you you know him better than I do no no so Jabari Lincoln is is the C in the story he's the CIA's top financial analyst uh -huh. and he's doing well he's at the top of his career until some sort of funny things happen and he's on the outs with his uh, employer yes so he's sort of under investigation from the CIA. yeah. Yeah. Under investigation and he gets and he sort of gets drawn into this weird international cyber sabotage plot mm -hmm. that deals with money. That, yes, deals with money. And, you know, Lord knows where you pulled this out of your head because <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> um, some, but, I tell people it's a fictional count with some realistic elements. Yes, yes. And that was the entire time I was wondering, you know, like every time we'd hit on a, a different point, I'd be like, huh, I wonder how fictional that is. I won't, I don't want to give away too much, but in, in the episodes, there's so many different things going on. One of them is looking at almost a grassroots innovation of this game that then deals with like is it game fin is that what it's being called sort of the, uh I'm, like uh, I'm finance not... it creates a wallet in this game which is based on a mm -hmm. cryptocurrency and then or at least a digital currency and mm -hmm. then um the point system in that game i think is especially compelling that certainly grabbed me that right, right. there's like a reward for how yeah. you spend yes so it's this incentivized spending 
which I think also another, I'm trying to, I'm really trying hard not to give away too much, but so a lot of this sort of emerges in Nigeria. I have a number of questions. One being, why did you pick Nigeria? But also (laughs) the fact that this seems to, you, you, you identify the situation in which this type of game and this type of currency was most effective was in a country that did not have a very stable financial system. And I think I'd love to hear more. And I think the two questions are related. Why Nigeria? And what are those conditions at which we should be most concerned about the introduction of digital currency? You know, obviously, I think authoritarianism would be a a slight red flag (laughs) to me. But are there other conditions in which we may find ourselves as a nation that we need to be thinking twice or thinking differently about the introduction of these kinds of technologies? Well, on the Nigeria side, I mean, Nigeria is because Nigeria is just yeah. a fascinating country, uh, just on the globe within Africa, the history, mm-hmm. the corruption which features prominently right in the beginning of the story. I mean, so you you just, Nigeria is just great. Um, The narration, if you might've noticed, Mm -hmm. I do uh, much of the narration and I'm not, I don't have a, well, interestingly, I have Hmm. Nigerian ancestry. Uh, My father's from Sierra Leone. My mother's Mm -hmm. from here, from the United States. And I was born and raised here, but in our lineage, we have some family Mm -hmm. that came from Nigeria, so there's there's that connection. Mm-hmm. And I've been in Nigeria. Um, I, I lived for a year in Nigeria mm. and went to second grade. We, we visited, my dad was working there for a year. But but just knowing Nigeria and just just and knowing Nigerians, <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to 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 highlight that. But the other side of it, again, without giving away spoilers, because it's really a journey. And there's really there are spoilers that could be given for every single episode because the story keeps <laughs> building. <laughs> yep. There are a lot of cliffhangers. Um, so without revealing the spoilers, I will say, um, I think there's a cautionary tale. Oh, oh, maybe I could share this. There, there's a I won't say this person's name. So there's someone, I'll just say, this is someone who is works in the government in the financial services capacity. And she let me know that she was listening to the Jabari Lincoln Files, just unsolicited, because I was posting it on LinkedIn. And, and then, you know, in emails, we're talking about business stuff. And then she would say, oh, I'm on, ep- I'm on, the, I'm on the last episode. When she finished the episode, or when she finished the series, she said something along the lines of, wow, you know, uh, this is making uh, me think mm-hmm. about what we need to do in in our, for our country and for our government, Jean, for our absolutely. financial system. Because the series is showing, mm-hmm. I think, what could happen if there were shifts in the geopolitical system and in the monetary system. How could that mm-hmm. impact the mm-hmm. United States and the world? And maybe I'll... Yeah, that, that's kind of where the story developed because it's based on things I've been experiencing and studying from what we've been talking about. And that interconnection that is something Michael and I have sort of been connecting the dots throughout a number of different topics. I think it is incredibly safe to say 
that within our financial system globally, everything already is connected. There's no, no one can act or no nation can act independently without those ripples being felt everywhere else. And Absolutely. boy, does the podcast get into it. Well, your podcast is a, is a cautionary yeah. tale. And it's also, though, it's important because I think so many people think that in security and in intelligence, it's very dry. But you're giving people actually a story that, that they can follow that also is educating them. And I guess I would mm -hmm. also say something. You told us a story a while ago when you were working at the agency, at the three initial agency, the CIA, um, the CIA, right? <laughs> CIA. Uh, but you, you were talking about like the first time that you gave a major kind of like a presentation and you made it into a game. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could share that with us and, but how you got a reaction, what the reaction was within the agency over that. Yeah, this is, wow. It's funny. This was a cautionary <laughs> tale when this happened to me that I, I was a young analyst and I didn't realize what, what it meant. So I was, um, you know, I was hired as an economic analyst at the CIA and um, I was in my first few months or maybe six months or so. And I was called basically all analysts. So I had a portfolio of countries and they had this week long training that they would send analysts to because I was new, but they would also have analysts teach um, at about mm -hmm. their countries at this training. It's internal. It's an internal training for people in the agency. And so so I'm sitting there and I realized when it's time for me to do my presentation, I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing, which is basically death by PowerPoint about country mm -hmm. X and this is the leadership, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was like, I'm not going to do that because it was a week. It was a week long training. So so when it was my turn to do a presentation, I decided I would create a role playing game mm -hmm. and it was a game. I called it Oilopoly because <laughs> the, 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 the idea was that I would split you into a group and everyone would take on a role. You would either be a dictator of the country, a human rights organization, NGO. U.S. diplomat, rebel group, and a corporate and a you know like a multinational corp corporation, and the object was you had to know what each person's interest was, and you had to negotiate some sort of agreement, and you know it was sort of that was the exercise. You had to talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera, and it went relatively well. The the participants were like, oh wow, this is great. They were learning, et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought, you know, I'm a young analyst. I'm like, oh wow, this is great. You know, so I remember like the next week when I'm back in the headquarters, um, and the the person who had organized the the training was was kind of what we called a green badger. It was like a retired person who came back to, you know, do do a few projects. And he's going around and he's like, you know, giving people the feedback or whatever. And I remember he comes to my my office, my desk, and he says something along the lines of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very interesting. Um, but next time, just do a regular presentation, <laughs> a regular briefing. Just stick you know, with and I was PowerPoint. Kinda, just stick to the PowerPoint. And I was so deflated, you know, I, I was like, what? Wait a second. I was creative. This was, you know, and so to me, the cautionary tale was that. Unfortunately, um, sometimes creativity, we don't use creativity enough in some of these settings. Mm -hmm. you know, we think of issues like national security, intelligence, but creativity, imagination, that I think, you know, it's a, it's a underlooked 
you know, element of our brains. Yes. And so, so the podcast kind of builds off of that approach to these issues. And I do think that certainly we have talked about the importance of creativity. This isn't about just people who are technically artists, you know, the painters or the musicians. This is about finding, I mean, we have to think creatively. The world is evolving at an incredibly fast rate. We need to be able to imagine what is to come, not just what is, and then be able to problem solve around that. And that is going to take creativity. And in the podcast, that is illustrated so beautifully, just in how Jabari, who is somewhat kind of disenfranchised from just about everything has to think about what he can do, mm. think about how he can serve the people around him and how he can continue to to respond to a really dynamic environment uh, in a way that is both, I think, moral, but also, mm. it, I, I want to say like, uh, like a winner's mentality or successful mentality of he's figuring out how to come out on top of these really tumultuous times. And mm. that is, it's really inspiring. It gets you thinking about just sort of geopolitics in general, but also I was thinking a lot about the the strengths and weaknesses of our three letter agencies and of our, yeah. you know, of our governments and their ability to respond. And one of the one of the questions I was left with, and it sounds like season two may be headed this way, is hmm. how do we ensure that our governments are positioned to be able to respond to the world that is moving so fast. Because right now our processes, our lawmakers are, you know, everything about what we're doing seems behind the curve, you know, that they don't get it or it's old, you know, I don't want to say they're old and scary, but like they are old and it's scary to them, you know, so they're not necessarily embracing. And I think if you look at a green badger who was, you know, like just do a PowerPoint, that's someone who's not thinking about what could be, you know, and how do we foster the creativity in a way to help us help us continue to to advance and survive? That's my soapbox. Yeah. And maybe this is, a you know, us in this new medium. I mean, right here, we're we're podcasting. You all are asking you like getting behind the scenes, right? This is the, I love that this is a long form podcast that we've, you know, there's, there's no limit. Including the tech problems. Uh, it's a it, it very is, long form. <laughs> right. This is a long, this is a long yeah. form edition. Um, uh, but, but the fact that now we have this, this environment where we can, we can go deep on these issues. We can talk about this in a way there, there aren't so many gatekeepers. Right. Yes. Um, and I think this is part of, this is what's happening in our culture. Like there, there are new points of reference. Um, and I think the cultural, I think elevating culture in national security is going to be part of that. Because if you think about it, don't policymakers need more imagination. Mm -hmm. So they, and, and they're already impacted by media and entertainment, mm -hmm. right? It's already in their, their milieu. What I think what we need more of is people who understand these issues. So it's not just Hollywood coming up with a crazy spy. I mean, I have my pet peeves. I mean, honestly, I don't, 
watch a lot of like spy TV shows. And so cause sometimes, especially when you have things, they're just so outlandish, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, I think the Jabari Lincoln files is, it's fantastic in many ways. There are things that are straight from like Hollywood, you know, cliffhanger uh, scenes that happen, but hopefully it's grounded in reality. So it's not so far fetched, you know, and you can yes. derive lessons. So I think we need more of more of that. I would say that the fact that you're doing these things uh, should give our listeners, it certainly gives me uh, hope, but it should give our listeners hope that there are good people out there thinking of these problems, trying to come up with, you know, with solutions. Uh, But by asking the questions, it's making us, you know, I think, you know, more informed and better. And I think uh, you and I were talking earlier about this, uh, Yaya, but I mean, I told you, you know, you're out there, you're doing the right thing. You're doing, you're fighting the good fight. Or as my British friends say, you know, you're doing the Lord's work. So I just, I really appreciate you and what you're doing out there and, and that you're doing and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. I have one yeah, final question. Sure. When can I expect season two? That is the other <laughs> question of the age. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, it's hard for me to put a timeline. I mean, I could say my intention is to get it as soon as possible, but but here's some context. I don't think it, sh- it will take this long, but it took three years for you to get season one in the sense that this was my first time writing and creating something like this. And, and I, I, I was I started it before the pandemic in terms of the writing and I was nights and weekends. So it was you know basically like writing a novel and then creating the episodes, producing. So that that took a long time. It, it shouldn't take that long. Um, but I'm currently um, working on some bonus content. So, you know, listeners, they may look and they see that, wow, he hasn't dropped an episode since whatever, March. Um, But that's because season one ended and I'm planning to upload some bonus content in the coming months as we sort of prepare for season two. Wonderful. So hopefully there'll be more coming soon. Yay. And then it'll be on Netflix, right? So we'll be. (laughs) (laughs) That's the long term goal. Yeah, we'll see if they can get the, the strike. Maybe Hollywood will have better terms for us content creators after this strike. Definitely. I love it. Well, Yaya, thank you so much for joining us. This was incredibly enlightening and fun. And Michael and I got to geek out considerably. And I think also it's really, I appreciate how accessible you make cryptocurrency and digital currency conversations um, and financial conversations so accessible because things like blockchain can just seem overwhelmingly complex and hard to wrap your mind around. And we're going to have to tackle these things and you're doing such great work of of making that translatable and understandable so thank you yeah well thank you thank you for the opportunity is there somewhere where our listeners could actually like look at some of your you know the other work that you're doing yes um you know it's you there you could find i mean usually if you you google me so there are a couple of places i mean you could look at my work at the Crypto Council for Innovation, CryptoCouncil.org. You could also find a lot of my think tank research at the uh, at CNAS.org. A lot of my older articles, especially about crypto, uh, about digital currency, CBDC, you'll find at the CNAS website. And uh, and sometimes I post on LinkedIn. I'm I'm not too active on. Twitter, but I, I do have some things 
up up there. And of course, you can find just Jabari Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, JabariLincoln.com and, and just search for the Jabari Lincoln Files on your favorite podcast player. Definitely. Absolutely. Oh, outstanding. Yes. Thank you so very much. And I hope our listeners will actually look at those yeah. and uh, will listen to Jabari Lincoln. And we will, we will get all that posted on our website and on social as well. So we will make it as easy as possible because I cannot recommend the podcast enough. Uh, and I read a few of your articles and they were equally insightful. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all. This has been a great conversation. And, you know, thank you for you all are doing the Lord's work by bringing people together and having these, you know, long form conversations. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we wanted to leave you with a clip of the Jabari Lincoln Files, season one, the Mansa Protocol. Hope you like it. Three years ago, the Rhythm of Wisdom podcast went on hiatus. During that time, we at Sign Curve Studios have been working on a new production, a spy thriller. We're pleased to present to you The Jabari Lincoln Files, a fictional audio adventure. Jabari Lincoln is the CIA's top financial analyst. He happens to be Muslim. And he's at the top of his professional game when he is unfairly suspected of being disloyal to the United States and gets suspended by the agency. Dejected and disgraced, he takes on a central bank consulting gig in Nigeria. But as he uncovers a sophisticated cyber financial plot, hidden forces try to eliminate him. Cut off from his family, friends, and intelligence colleagues, he travels across three continents in order to figure out who is pulling the strings, and hopefully to try to prevent the onslaught of a global financial apocalypse. In this financial technology spy thriller, the question becomes, will a cryptocurrency help save the world, or could it help destroy it? The Jabari Lincoln Files, Season 1, The Mansa Protocol. Subscribe now to The Jabari Lincoln Files wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing, you'll get updates on the release of the full episodes. Also, follow Jabari Lincoln at his personal blog at jabarilincoln.com. Forward this message only to those you trust before the file self-destructs. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app. Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org. You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org. Canary Group.